ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turable Land. Today, exercise and your mood. What exercise, how often and how intense? Yes, Norman, how often and how intense for you? What's your exercise of choice? My exercise of choice is actually an hour at the gym. So it's a mix of stuff. Unfortunately, with a sore knee, I can't run as well as I used to. Mm. And also coming up, Norman, how long since your last skin cancer check? Oh, I'm a bit blasé about that. I suppose I'm false sense of confidence because I've got all of skin. Mm. Might not be enough of a protection. No. It, it has been a long time for me as well, maybe years. Uh, and I think it might be complacency on my part because I could just book an appointment anytime. There's skin cancer clinics and GPs that specialise in it all over the shop near where I live. But I've been speaking to people this week who are driving 10 hours to see a skin doctor every couple of months and they say they deserve better access. And we'll also be talking about a mysterious disease that you probably should know about. Mm. I'm really curious about that one because I think it's one of those diseases that they often mentioned on that show House when they were trying to do a differential diagnosis. <laughs> I've never actually known what it actually is. Well, actually, we'll talk about it later, but at medical school, there are a couple of conditions where, you know, you're asked for the differential diagnosis. What could this be? And yeah, this condition is always one of them. Uh, syphilis is actually another one, but we'll, we can come to that later. Well, first of all, let's cover some of the health news that's been um, kicking around this week. And there has been quite a few big stories. One of them is a retraction by a scientific publisher of two studies involving abortion pills, which, uh, as well as being a medical issue, is also a really hot political issue. Yeah, this has been reported by the journal Nature. And also the British Medical Journal has got involved in this as well. So the drug we're talking about is mifepristone. Um, it used to be called RU486 and it does induce abortions. And it's the it's one of the two key drugs used in medical abortions where you don't need a surgical intervention. Hugely controversial in the United States where um, it's a way of women getting around surgical abortion bans and uh, with cross-border importation of uh, RU486, of mifepristone, and in some states uh, they've banned the prescription of mifepristone. And these papers that you're talking about have been quoted and used in court cases uh, trying to get mifepristone or succeeding in getting mifepristone banned in particular in states. And one of the states is Texas. There's been Texas rulings on this. Anyway, the two papers have been retracted that have been used in these cases. Now, there's a moral question that people use for um, abortion bans, but there's also they're trying to extend that into safety. And the suggestion here that they're trying to build up is that mifepristone has not had proper safety studies and therefore that uh, Congress should intervene and overrule the Food and Drug Administration's approval of this drug. And it's been used in a micro level at state level. And as evidence of harm, um, one paper showed that there were increased emergency department visits related to medical terminations. And the suggestion here is that that shows that there's risk. Uh, another study suggested that 
there was an excess incidence of doctors with malpractice suits against them and criminal suits against them who were performing um, abortions in the United States. And uh, both those papers have been retracted for a couple of reasons. Why? Well, one core one is that there were conflicts of interest in terms of the authors, that they came from very strong anti-abortion positions and organisations. But more importantly, it was the data, the data were a problem. So, for example, the one with emergency department visits, um, there was no comparison there with what the normal trend, what the trend was with emergency department visits. So they were suggesting there was an increase of emergency department visits for people who'd had medical termination using Medicaid data. That's a bit like our Medicare, but for disadvantaged people in the United States. Now, two things with that data. One is ED visits were going up anyway, and there was no proof that the ED visit rate trend was any different for people who'd had medical abortions from anybody else coming to emergency departments. Emergency department visits were going up anyway. And then the other uh, question was, what were they coming to the emergency department for? Bleeding is common with mifepristone. Were they just turning up to have their bleeding checked or was it a genuine complication? And there's no evidence there was an increased rate of complications. And similarly with the doctors and malpractice, um, there was no comparison there. Were they any different from any other group of doctors? So and there was also a, a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry, unrelated, which also had problems with the data and their conclusions about mental health implications of medical abortions. And uh, again, with conflicted authors, but the British Journal of Psychiatry has not retracted that paper, even though it's been heavily criticised. Mm. And just quickly, uh, we've also had data out this week from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare about how we're going. Fewer people are smoking, but way more people are vaping. Yes, we've got smoking rates in younger people down to very low levels by international standards, down below 10%, which is fantastic news. But vaping has gone up considerably, um, particularly in young people. Some people have said, well... Is there any harm to the increased vaping if indeed smoking rates are going down? Because people have said, well, vaping is a gateway to uh, smoking in young people. And that's an active debate. But there's also harm involved in vaping as well. But vaping has gone up, which shows that the concern was justified. And in other findings, we are very high users of cocaine in Australia, amongst the highest in the world. So there's good and bad news there. And alcohol is a mixed picture. Mm. Well, there is one drug that is free and good for you, and that is exercise. Indeed. And exercise has been shown to um, be a therapy for depression. But recommendations vary around the world about what sort of exercise you should have, how long it should, you should be doing it for, how intense. And so researchers have actually done a review of the available evidence in terms of what sort of exercise works, how often, and what sort of dose. And one of the researchers was Michael Nuttell, who's a psychologist at the University of Queensland. Thanks, Norman. Before we get to the actual findings of this review of the evidence and exercise and depression, I mean, it's fraught, isn't it? Because, first of all, how can you do a placebo for exercise? You're either doing yoga or you're not, or you're either running madly down the, through the countryside <laughs> or not. And the second one is... If you're able to do that, how bad your depression? Because one of the features of depression is I really cannot motivate myself to do anything, lift my phone or get out of bed. And if you're motivated or activated enough to actually get out and exercise, is your depression so mild it doesn't matter? 
These are really good questions. So let me take them in turn. So coming to the second one, because these were randomized trials, we think that there's better causal evidence here that giving someone a good exercise program does get people out of bed. And I think that the difference here is that if you are given a program, as opposed to just sort of generally encouraged to do some physical activity, that even when you account for the dropout and the fact that people with depression struggle to stay motivated and struggle to turn up, the effects here are as good as a whole lot of other treatments because those other treatments are hard to do too. It's hard to get out of bed to go see a therapist. It's not a lot of people who get antidepressants don't take them all the time. So that's one thing. The second thing is a bit of a problem because when you looked at blinding, it was really hard to double blind these studies. Still, these studies did try to do a range of different control conditions, but they didn't work as well as therapy and they didn't work as well as like active exercise programs. Okay, so you looked through a list of different forms of exercise And some rose to the top. Which ones? Well, the ones that rose to the top were things like strength training and yoga, walking and running, even aerobic exercise where people do a mix of different things, um, and even Tai Chi and Qigong. So the ones that people were least likely to drop out of were yoga and strength training. But all the ones that I've listed there were all pretty good with the effects in the same range as like cognitive behavior therapy. One of the things that you say in the paper is motivating you to do actually to do the paper is that if you look at national guidelines for exercise and depression, they're usually pretty vague and nonspecific. Oh, it would be a good idea if you went out and did some exercise, but not really taking it with the seriousness that you would with psychotherapy or a prescription. You've already alluded to the fact that programmatic ones seem to do better, but you looked at dose and you looked at intensity. What did you come up with? Fortunately, in Australia, our guidelines are reasonably good. So the psychiatric guidelines for mood disorder say that everybody should be doing vigorous exercise a couple times a week. But as you pointed to, that's not the case everywhere. We didn't find that you have to do it a couple times a week. We didn't find the amount of time that you spend exercising a number of sessions seemed to matter in the studies that we looked at. But the intensity did. So even a gentle walk was good, but walking the stairs or going for a run was better. You know, Hatha yoga was good, but doing a more intensive type of yoga was better. And so even 15 or 20 minutes seemed to be effective. But if that was up and down the stairs, that was better than just doing a gentle walk. One of the things that they've said about exercise and cognitive abilities, so we're changing frame now from exercise and depression to exercise and cognitive ability, Mm. is they say, well, maybe it's not the exercise. Maybe it's actually what you do during the exercise. So, for example, they've said, well, programmatic exercise like strength training is good for cognition, maybe because you're actually in a group. You're interacting with other people and you're counting your reps. There's actually a cognitive aspect to the training itself. Did you look at that? We did find some evidence that would be consistent with that. So, for example, we found that older adults and men tended to get a better response from this from doing things like yoga. And I think that's because, like, if I think about my dad, he would not have done a downward dog in his whole lifetime. And no, so I was going to say, be... was it because men hate, would hate the idea of yoga more than women? <laughs> Possibly, but also because I think it's newer and they're learning something new. And sort of if you flip it around, like women got better results from strength training and younger people did too. And those might be things that people are more likely novel for that population. So, look, I think there probably is an element of this. I think one of the reasons why a lot of things are working here is because you are learning something new and doing something different and getting feedback and, you know, strength training improves your self-efficacy because you get so much better quickly the first time you start doing a program like this. So I'm sure that there are a range of factors improving people's depression, and I wouldn't be surprised if the cognitive things you pointed to made a difference too. What was the interaction between exercise 
and say psychotherapy, cognitive behavioural therapy and or antidepressants? When people were on antidepressants, the exercise combined with the antidepressant was much better. Roughly like a doubling in the effect over just a control group. The effects of therapy with exercise were roughly the same as just therapy on its own or exercise on its own. The whole psychedelic story is premised on a large proportion of people, maybe 30 odd percent of people who are given the best standard of care, don't get better. It's treatment-resistant depression. So that's the argument that why not go on psilocybin because that's going to help resistant depression if you can afford 25,000 bucks. But the, um, does exercise help resistant depression? We looked at whether the effects of exercise were different on the basis of the severity of people's symptoms when they started. And it's a little bit hard to be as strong in the causal claims here because you can't kind of perfectly be sure that the treatments that were offered to people with severe depression are the same as the ones without. So it would make sense that people with severe depression were given lighter exercise. Still, we didn't find any differences across the board of people with severe depression doing less well off exercise. Whereas I know for antidepressants, like my understanding is the effects are stronger for people with more severe levels of depression. So now, nobody's depressed after uh, you know, listening to the health report for an hour. Right. But, you know, let, but let's assume there's, they know somebody who's got depression. Where do we land with the recommendations here? Where we land here is that exercise isn't going to be a silver bullet. There's no silver bullet for depression. Depression is debilitating for all of us who have been through it. And as a result, I would probably recommend that we throw everything at it. And so exercise has very few barriers for a lot of people, especially once you just put walking on the menu and could be considered just like a frontline treatment alongside psychotherapy and medication. And not just adding another thing to someone's list of things that they feel guilty about, which is already pretty long when you're feeling depressed, but instead linking them in with someone or a group who can kind of help support them through that journey. So either a referral to an exercise physiologist or a physio or you know a PT or an exercise group, just so that people aren't going it alone. GPs can give five sessions of exercise physiology to people with a chronic health condition, and a lot of people with depression would meet that criteria. But anecdotally, we haven't seen that as part of routine practice. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks again, Norman. That was Michael Notell, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology, University of Queensland. So a couple of echoes there. One is our social prescribing story that you had a couple of weeks ago in the health Mm -hmm. report. And the other is that you just get out there a bit more. Well, you're a human beam of sunshine, Norman, but when you are in a funk, what exercise gets you out of it the quickest? I've actually got to, I go to the gym and I do an hour session in the gym, so which is a mixture of quite rigorous um, aerobics. So I'll do the rowing, I'll do bike and maybe the elliptical and then do weights. And I'm so knackered at the end of that that I forget that I was in a bad mood. Too but, tired to be angry. But, and you go you go climbing. Is that because this combination of exercise and scaring the shit out of yourself? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Can you, can you, I survived, so <laughs> life must be good. Celebrating life, my life. You're with The Health Report. So, Norman, I wonder how far away your closest skin clinic is because I checked and there are four between my home and the ABC Brisbane office and one of them is like a 10-minute walk from where I'm sitting right now. I'm guessing it'd be similar for you, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of these entrepreneurial clinics opening up as well, so GPs specialising in skin cancer care. Well, that is not the case for the people that I've been speaking to this week. People who live in the far north of Queensland, the state that has the dim distinction of having the highest rate of skin cancer in the world, but perversely that doesn't mean that skin cancer screening and treatment is easy to access. 
One of the people I've been chatting to is David Henriksen. He is a cattle grazier in Croydon in northwest Queensland, uh, and he regularly makes the full day drive east to Cairns for skin checkups. Working in the heat with fair skins, you have to keep on top of any problems that may come about. It's a day's drive at 680 kilometres. Yeah, you do have to make sure there's other jobs you can do while you're down there, but yeah, the skin check is what we go there for. Our appointments are booked like every six months, so the issue is if you can't make an appointment because of work, you can't get away from the station and you cancel that appointment, it's not as though you can just come down next week. Yeah, you might have to wait months again to be able to get in to um, see the specialist. No melanomas, but there's always getting something either tested or, or burnt out. Yeah, it's a bit hard to put a number on it, but every time we go down there, there's always, yeah, it could be up to half a dozen of, yeah, scaly bits or any bits of concern that are burnt out. We've got access to local GPs or the flying doctor where, um, like, not, not all the towns, small towns have got, a GP um, in the town, so they rely on the flying doctor. But if you had um, a specialist setting something up to do a road trip, it's not just for the people that already get their skin checks done. It's for the people that don't. There's a, a lot of people that um, just keep brushing it aside and don't go and get their checks. Like if it's in their town, a lot more people would go and utilise that service. People only get those sort of things done, you know, if they've got time when they go away. Like animals on the station to look after and have someone around the homestead to be able to get away and yeah, the cost of fuel now and your accommodation, you have to spend a night away and then come back the next day. So yeah, it's all a big cost. Sarah Pye lives even further north than David in Weeper, which is right towards the tip of the Cape York Peninsula, uh, which is Queensland's pointy bit. She's roughly the same distance from Port Moresby as she is from Cairns, but her father-in-law Stephen has been making very regular expeditions south since he was diagnosed with melanoma and a few dozen other skin cancers a couple of years ago. It was having to fly out just to even get the deck up. Then it was being told that he had a melanoma and then having to go back, like come back home, fulfill his work life and home life obligations, but then have to have that interrupted and then fly back away from his home life and then have to have that procedure. He put in a position where he's not working, he's having to cover his own accommodation and go through that mental procedure that happened when you find out that you've got something as significant as melanoma and you're having to deal with it all away from home. Time-wise, we're looking at a 10-hour drive. That's if the road conditions are okay and our road conditions on the way to Weeper aren't the best. They have to go down every time a concerning one comes up. And it's a matter of waiting months, you know, for a few of them to accumulate to make it worth going down. Because if you're going down for just one at a time, the expense of it all just starts accumulating. You know, our lifestyle, nearly every household has a buggy or a quad or, you know, a boat. And we don't have big fancy shopping centres, but what we have is we have wholesome outdoor experiences. And yes, sun safety is considered, but... You know, we're at the tip of Australia. The enjoyment of being outside, and we don't want to be deterred away and go, oh, can't go outside because we've got no access to skin facilities. So that's Sarah's story. Uh, what about solutions here? Because presumably there are some like telehealth or video health or something like that. They're absolutely, uh, I, I think telehealth and digital health it's interesting. Actually, one of the doctors who's keen to be part of the solution is Vin Rajaswaran, and he is piloting some of that stuff. But he says the hundreds of patients on his books from hundreds of kilometres away, 
it's not always a tech solution. Sometimes you really do have to see someone in person. And for a small organization, we found around 560 melanomas in 24 months between January 2022 to December 2023. And that is a lot of melanomas to be found in a small countryside city, right? So the the scale of the issue is that we look at 1,600 patient visits a week here in my clinic. And we could do more if I had the resources. However, that's what we're looking at, at least in Cairns. So you're in Cairns? but you're servicing a a much bigger area than that. So we have almost the whole of far north Queensland, patients coming from as north as Vipa, Karamba, Normanton in the northwest, south will be Cardwell, and 30% to 35% of my patient load would be from the Cassidy Coast to the Tablelands. So that's an hour and a half drive each way, minimum. It goes without saying that far north Queensland is pretty sunny. People spend a lot of their time outside. And then if there is a delay or, or real barriers in getting to a specialist, are you seeing people when their cancers are perhaps more progressed than they would have been if they'd been able to see someone more quickly? Yes and no. So the awareness I used to when I first came to Cairns, we used to see nightmares where uh, there'd be fungating big lesions that has been left for years because they couldn't access medical care. But luckily, we don't see that very often because most of the times people just travel and get it checked at by us. So we don't see those advanced cases as much as we used to. But still, what worries me as an individual is the amount of travel, say, a 75-year-old has to do just to get a spot checked. And two hours each way is a long drive for a 75-year-old. So you're the Vice President of the Skin Cancer College of Australasia. How does your experience echo what you're hearing from your colleagues in other parts of Australia? It's the same issue in the bigger states. So I don't see that as an issue, say, in a state like Victoria, because it's a fairly smallish thing. But there's huge shortages in Western Australia. When I say shortages, not in the bigger cities like Perth, but it's more rural and regional cities or towns. Same issue in, say, for example, Point Macquarie. Uh, I've got a friend in Point Macquarie who's going through the same issue. Same with Northern Territory and South Australia. So the same barriers we are facing here is faced by a number of my colleagues who work in remote areas. So what are you calling for then? Well, I'm calling for... The government to come and talk to doctors like me and just find out what the actual issue is and then work on a solution that benefits grassroots doctors and patients rather than just coming up with broad policies. You can't have one-size-fits-all solutions that you apply to Melbourne CBD and WIPA. We need to have specific region-based solutions and people like me can give guidance on what's required and what my patients want. And I think it has to be more region-based solutions. And it's not all about funding. It's not so much about pay the doctor more and they'll go, but I personally don't have a place to go to if I wanted to go to Mount Isa or Vipa. So we need to work on places that doctors can base themselves in these regional remote towns as well. And for people who are living in regional areas, like what's your sort of message to them if they are worried about a dodgy looking mole or something like that? I think the first point of call would be the local GP. If they have a GP in their town, it has to be checked one way or another. 
So we're now working on some remote imaging access where we actually mail a um, scope to the patient that attaches to most smartphones, and then they can take quite detailed image and they can email it to us. But still in the preliminary kind of trial phase, but we should be able to provide it to the patients the next few months. That's pretty cool. I think so. There is a trial going on. The University of Queensland and University of Sydney are working on it. So once we uh, get that approved by TGA, I think that'll change the way we do medicine as well. Yeah, I'll have to get you back to talk about that. I guess the question I kind of wanted to know is like, why do you care so much? Like, you could you just could kick back in cans and rake in money from people who are coming to you anyway? Like, why is it so important to you to, to go out to these regional places? It's my passion on providing access. I mean, the skin cancer is a bit of a passion because I lost my mother to breast cancer. And having, uh, she was in India and it was a nightmare trying to get her access to good quality care. And uh, my father ended up selling a lot of his possessions just to afford to um, get her some treatment. And obviously it didn't work. But the passion to rural regional thing is sitting here, it's frustrating because I have contacts with all the universities and every single clinical trial or new technology that comes up goes to the cities. How many of these fancy new machines do you see in towns like Cairns or Townsville? You don't. And that's what upsets me. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I've formed as a passion is to get access to remote people. You know, one of the issues here is that uh, you treat the skin cancer in hospitals sometimes, not always, um, but the healthcare system doesn't control general practice. Right. And that's where at least the first line of defence against skin cancer is often given. And so the Queensland government is aware that this is a challenge here and is actually currently running a skin cancer prevention and early detection project. A big part of its remit is primary prevention, that sort of slip, slop, slap message. But of course, screening and treatment has to be part of the mix. And one of the organisations that's providing this side of this is called Checkup. And I've been speaking to Marianne Quilter, who manages the Skin Cancer Program. In terms of the Skin Cancer Early Detection Program, what we are doing is contracting GPs with qualifications in skin cancer medicine uh, and our experience in that area to travel to rural locations to deliver clinics to patients in those areas. So they will do full body skin checks as well as any treatments. So things such as biopsies, excisions, they then obviously send off all those um, tests and follow up on the results post-visit. Um, we're also delivering a number of upskilling workshops for GPs, which have been really popular in regional areas. Lots of demand from GPs for this upskilling. It's a really cost-effective way to support the uh, workforce in these rural and remote communities, which are already at capacity, and also providing that service to patients. In terms of cost-effectiveness, I think it's a really great way to upskill uh, local health providers and ensure that people who are living in those communities, and many of them are outdoor workers, particularly in rural communities, and at high risk of skin cancer, that they are being assessed and treated for skin cancer. And where are you currently operating? This program is funded to target five hospital and health service regions. So we're going into Mackay, Townsville, Central Queensland, the southwest and northwest Queensland. Not yet the far north. Uh, it is a pilot program. We are hoping that potentially there'll be further funding. There's definitely demand in, uh, I would say, all regions across um, Queensland and particularly in those more remote locations. 
So it is great that that pilot program is running, but unfortunately for people like David Henriksen and Sarah and her father-in-law, Stephen Pye, the service isn't operating as far north as them yet. There's no access to that sort of basic care or vans that come up here and do like community, hey, come get your skincare check. Like there's no access to that. You have to source out your own funding, source out your own resources and where you can actually have something done about it. Everyone is in agreement. We're very limited to that basic care. So that's Sarah Pye, who lives in Weeper, right up the tippy top of Queensland, Norman. Yeah, and Checkup's actually a really interesting organisation. It's nothing to do with skin checkups. It's actually an organisation unique to Queensland, which brings together all the elements of the healthcare system trying to get them to work together. I think other states could learn from that. Represent. And you're with the Health Report. Now, Tegan, every so often on the Health Report, we don't have a news peg, but just sometimes we cover a, an issue, a problem, a medical issue that people probably should know about. And whenever we do, we always find people writing in and saying, I've got that. I'm glad you did it because I never realised that that's what the problem was. And rather than tease out what the problem is, I'll tell you up front, it's called sarcoidosis. I've heard of it because I used to watch Dr. House a lot and it was one of those things that they always chucked out when they were doing a differential diagnosis. I'm not sure a patient on the show actually ever had it though. Didn't they? Well, they should have had it. Um, <laughs> It's a weird one. There are typical patterns of it. So when I was training as a specialist physician or paediatrician, you would get these slides of um, big lumps on red lumps on the shins. It's called erythema nodosum. And there are all sorts of conditions that can cause that, and one of them is sarcoidosis. So there's lots of things that mimic sarcoidosis, and sarcoidosis mimics other things, one of which actually could be tuberculosis can be confused sometimes with that because you can get night sweats and large lymph nodes and so on. But the treatment is really not terribly good for it. The diagnosis is clunky and relies on biopsies. And so they've started this organisation called a Sarcoidosis Advocacy and Research Initiative. And one of the people that got it going is somebody we've actually known for a few years, Branko Seller. Now, Branko Seller is actually not a doctor. He's um, a bioinformatician. He, he specialises in IT, in healthcare, and we used to work for the CSIRO. Anyway, he got sarcoidosis and has now become a published author in it. And I spoke to him recently. I've always been in very good health, but in 2004, I had a chest x-ray and they thought it could be sarcoidosis, but they said, don't worry about it. It's what were your all, symptoms you know, then? I had no symptoms in 2004, none whatsoever. Right. It was completely accidental finding, and that's the way it often happens with sarcoidosis. And nothing really else happened very much until 2012, and I suddenly had massive arrhythmias, and I thought, okay, that was odd. But then later on that night, they came back. And so the following morning, I admitted myself to St. Vincent's Hospital, where they presumed that it was sarcoidosis. I was in total cardiac block by that stage. Meaning the and, electrical uh, information wasn't getting through your heart. Yes. What did you know about sarcoidosis at that point? I don't a little bit. And I understood how bizarre and unknown it was and what a completely orphan disease it is. But after that, I started researching it very seriously. To the point where you've published a paper on it in terms of your own journey, where you follow the hypothesis that this actually might be an infection. I mean, essentially, sarcoidosis is inflammation in the lungs and other parts of the body. And some people think it might be a relation of tuberculosis. 
Absolutely. I concluded that it was a very good chance it could be associated with MAP, Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, i.e., as you said, closely linked to tuberculosis. MAP agents are totally endemic in the community. They're everywhere. But the question is why some people get disease from it and why are more people not getting disease from it? So you went on antibiotics? Well, firstly, I had to convince myself that I had MAP, and that was really difficult because no one can culture MAP in Australia. The only people that have been doing it for many, many years is a company in New Zealand. So I had my blood cultured, and it came back very, very strong with MAP. And so I started an anti-tubercular combination for about a year. And at the end of the day, my life was probably at risk. You know, my ejection fractions had gone from 75% to 35%. So just to explain to that, you were going into heart failure. Yes, I had the drugs prescribed and I took them for a year. One year after I took the uh, antibiotic medication, no sign of sarcoidosis at all in my heart. But a year after that, it came back. The mycobacteria were back in my blood and the activity in my heart was very active again. So did you go back on the antibiotics? By that time, they were antibiotic resistant, so they're not working on me. There's been no sarcoidosis medication that's ever reached stage three trials. No drug has ever been designed specifically to target sarcoidosis. So what are you hoping to achieve through this advocacy group? Our understanding is quite primitive. No research grants have ever been granted in Australia. So you're a clinical trialist of one. You're just being an experimental lab rat, really. It's not my preference. That's why we set up SARI. We want to create an environment where we can carry out well-funded research on genetic studies, susceptibility studies, antibiotic studies, and a whole bunch of other questions. Branko, thank you for joining us, and good luck. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on your show. That's Branko Seller, who's Emeritus Professor in Biomedical Engineering at the University of New South Wales. SARI, again, is the Sarcoidosis Advocacy and Research Initiative, which actually started at the University of New South Wales. So I thought I'd talk to a physician who um, has an interest in sarcoidosis and is a member of this initiative, and that's uh, Paul Thomas, who's a respiratory physician at Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. It's a rather enigmatic disease. It's difficult to diagnose and it's often insidious, which makes it quite difficult to establish the correct diagnosis. It's probably due to some environmental agents, but there is also a genetic component. Identical twins have about an 80-fold increase in likelihood of having sarcoidosis if the other twin has it, whereas dissimilar twins, it's probably only about sevenfold. And there are cases where sarcoidosis has occurred in spouses. And so that suggests that there is an environmental component. So how would you know you've got it? What sort of symptoms do people get? The symptoms can vary considerably. Acute sarcoidosis can be quite easy to diagnose if you have sort of red raised lesions on your shins about the size of a 20 cent piece. So they're sort of red, slightly tender nodules, red eyes and a cough, then that's the, an acute presentation of sarcoidosis. But in other people, the onset's really quite insidious. It's slow and there are patients who have tiredness, have no obvious explanation for their symptoms, which can be joint aches, tiredness, lethargy. And they can go for many years, even decades, before they're diagnosed as having sarcoidosis. Those are the people who really have trouble in being diagnosed and treated. But when you say treated, the treatments are still pretty primitive, aren't they? Well, it depends whether you call uh, corticosteroids, steroids, prednisolone, primitive. I do call them primitive because they're <laughs> probably not disease-modifying. They're probably just inhibiting the inflammation and not getting to the cause. 
correct. They are suppressant. It's very variable in terms of people's response and also their long-term outcomes. So some people get better spontaneously and some people don't. So what about this theory that is caused by this tuberculosis-like bacterium called Mycobacterium avium? The histopathological changes of sarcoidosis are that of what we call a granuloma, so it has a particular appearance under the microscope. And that same appearance can occur in patients with both mycobacterium tuberculosis and in some patients with mycobacterium avium complex. The idea is that one of the organisms, mycobacterium paratuberculosis, might be involved in the generation of the sarcoid granules. I don't think it would be likely to cause all cases of sarcoidosis. So what about antibiotics? You have to give at least three or four antibiotics, and usually for a very long time, perhaps 12 or more months, maybe years, and they don't always respond very well. Having said that, I have a number of patients with sarcoidosis in my clinic, and over the years, two have actually grown types of mycobacteria, which was quite unexpected. They developed new symptoms and we were able to culture one form of mycobacteria, mycobacterium avium complex, and in the other, a different type, which was only found in Southeast Asia. And he had been on holiday in Southeast Asia 20 or more years ago. So what happens to people with sarcoidosis? The majority get better. The data suggests that the disease is underreported, and that's because people have sarcoidosis and it goes away. Those who do present, probably 70% will not require treatment and the disease will go away. The 30% where it persists, it can persist in all sorts of different ways, causing lung fibrosis, or it can affect the eyes, causing inflammation in the eyes and affect the vision. And rarely it can affect the central nervous system and probably at 5% or so, it affects the heart as well. And in those patients, they often have a more complicated outlook and prognosis and often require ongoing treatment. So that's Paul Thomas, who's an emeritus professor at the University of New South Wales and also a respiratory physician there. Interestingly, we've had a couple of emails over the last few weeks from listeners who've got mycobacterium avium and we've got a lot of trouble with it, uh, which is interesting and troubling. And we might maybe we'll cover that on Watch That Rash. Or maybe we could because it is the uh, show where we answer people's questions. Uh, if you're not subscribed to What's That Rash, I don't know why. All you need to do is search for it and hit that follow button. And this week we're talking about apps that try to take into account your hormones to improve your workout, um, especially if you're a woman. That's What's That Rash. And if you're not a subscriber to The Health Report and you just happened upon The Health Report, why not subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts? We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.